more and more as we continue to get to know one another more and more and spend more time with one another. So thank you for the invitation to be here. Um, when I asked him what the theme is for this preaching series that you're doing right now in Mark, he responded, we're trying to learn from and about Jesus the Christ by watching how he lived. Paying, <clears throat> excuse me, I may need some water because of my allergies. Paying attention to where he went, how he reacted to people, and what his priorities were. And I thought, right, imagine that, that we're going to pay attention intentionally to Jesus. If believers would only do that more, right? As we talk about not reading the book that shared what he was doing and what he was saying. Looking at him more attentively. Thanks, friends. So listen to these words from the book we love. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there who had a withered hand. And they watched him to see whether he would cure him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come forward. And then he said to them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger. He was grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately conspired with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. This is the word of the Lord. These short six verses, I think, are so full. I was immediately struck by the Sabbath construct because Jesus makes an authoritative declaration about the Sabbath in the preceding story at the end of chapter 2 in Mark. And so during this period of time, the Jews... Um, engaged in an extensive debate about the Sabbath. What's lawful? What isn't? What's allowed? What constitutes work? And as we know, the Sabbath was instituted by God at the very beginning in Genesis during creation. And when the Israelites received the law in Exodus, they were told to remember the Sabbath to keep it holy, holy, set apart, different. The Greek word for Sabbath means rest, ceasing. 
and the Israelites or the Jews, they were expected to model their conduct after God's work in creation, as we know, by ceasing their labor. They were to stop working and to rest, to rest and serve God, to concentrate on those things which concerned eternity and spiritual life and God. The Sabbath was a sign that they belonged to him, that these were his people called out to be different. And so at the end of the second chapter in Mark, Jesus is schooling the Pharisees, as he's prone to do, letting them know, reminding them that the Sabbath was made for humankind and not humankind for the Sabbath. And then he is bold, telling them, the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. And so now, in the third chapter, we find ourselves in the synagogue alongside the people, and once again with Jesus and the Pharisees. And throughout the Gospels, we find Jesus in and out of the synagogue teaching, certainly there for the people, right? But it seems always, always with a focus on teaching and correcting the church leaders. Clearly, they didn't agree with his proclamation that the Sabbath was made for the people. And so we see them still watching and challenging him. They were with him in the second chapter, watching. And so they're doing the same thing. They're watching and challenging. And we know they didn't recognize him as Lord of the Sabbath. And during this time, again, healing and controversy continues to be entwined as they're splitting hairs, as we're prone to do, right, on this issue about what is exactly permitted on the Sabbath. Because we like this. We want to write it down. You may do this. You may not do that. So they're splitting hairs about this. The Pharisees, as we know, they're religious experts. So they're people like us who should have led the people in righteousness, not in condemnation. But as we see in the story, they did not. And Jesus reveals that it's because of their hardened hearts. I wonder, what is the condition of our hearts? It makes me think of a comment made in my table talk group last week. As someone pointed out, something to the effect that the preachers and those in leadership write that we need to model our beliefs by standing up, by leading the way, by speaking truth to power. But this person noted that much too often the norm is that we preachers of the word and, and our leaders in our society, we don't do that. Too often, too many of us are swayed by power and money and influence. 
and so we remain quiet. Apparently, maybe those hearts are hardened as well. And so here we find the Pharisees watching. They're watching. What captures their attention? What's capturing our attention when we're watching? What are we watching closely to see, to uncover? And to what end? To challenge, as they're doing? Or to come alongside, as you're getting ready to do for this couple, right? who just got this horrific diagnosis. Here we find the Pharisees watching closely, not, not to hear the word of life, no, no, but rather to accuse Jesus, plotting, conspiring, conspiring with their bitter enemies, willing to set aside differences to destroy a common foe. And I thought, oh, these are the conversations we have in some of these groups that, that Chris and, and Brian belong to and Katie's in my table talk group. Oh, what if we could set aside some of our differences? What might that look like? How might we be able to work together in ways that we currently don't so that we might be Micah 6-8 people, that we might do good, that we might love justice, that we might be walking humbly, that we would be trying to save life, getting up every day with the mindset that I'm supposed to pursue justice in whatever arena I'm in today. That I'm called to truly love God and my neighbor. And my neighbor. Not just that person that's close to me, but that person that I don't know that I have to go out of my way and cross the road to get to because I see from a distance that they too have a need. But although these two groups, they don't agree on much, the Pharisees and their enemies, they agree that, yeah, this dude, we're going after him. We're going to oppose every single thing he's saying and doing. And you know what? We kind of have the authority because Herod wants him killed. Herod wanted Jesus dead. So this is the backdrop, what's twirling, what has been twirling. And surely, surely, knowing all of this, Jesus still places himself right smack back in the synagogue, right in their midst. Those who are curious about him, those who maybe are falling in love with him, and those who are not. 
And he seems focused, doesn't he? He doesn't appear to be distracted from his mission and his purpose. And so I wonder, you might notice that I say this a few times because I know your pastor does. I wonder <laughs> what might happen if we were as clear about our own mission and purpose, individually, but collectively, right? You as the branch, we as Eastminster, all of us as the Church of God. What might happen if we were more focused, not deterred by our critics and our naysayers, those plotting and scheming our demise, and I'm I confess, because I have, I know you'll find it hard to believe, but I do have critics and naysayers who are plotting my demise. And I do get a little bit, just a little bit distracted on occasion. We're told that there was a man there with a withered, I don't know what that looks like, withered hand. Did Jesus know ahead of time that the man was going to be there? Was he possibly there just for him? Was it just a coincidence that the guy with the hand was there and Jesus just happened to see him when he was coming in and say, oh, look at your hand. I'm going to use you for a lesson since I've seen you. Do we even believe we're reformed? Do we believe in coincidence? In chance encounter? Anyway, others, including the Pharisees, they also saw the man. And the Pharisees, clearly knowing our Lord's reputation for healing folks, are watching him. They're watching to see if he's going to cure again, and this time on the Sabbath. So by this time, Jesus must have garnered quite a reputation because they're anticipating his action, his response to a need that's present. So this means that the Pharisees know that Jesus has the ability to heal. It seems to imply, at least to me, that they believe he also has a desire to do so. And the setup for me makes me think of old Western movies. Something like, now this is going to be, most of you are too young. Something like Gunfight at the OK Corral, where everybody's, you know your enemies, you know you've got to fight, and you're setting the stage and planning it out. Because Jesus clearly knows not only that the Pharisees are present, but he's expecting their challenge, I think. And as we know, unless you're really shielded by God's grace 24-7, the enemy is always lurking about, like this lion trying to pounce, plotting to destroy us. But here we have the true lion. The lion from the tribe of Judah is on the scene. And he initially ignores them, focusing on the person in need. 
while I think subtly staging his play, his lesson. And Jesus speaks to the man with the withered hand, a man who most likely, most likely is typically ignored, probably shunned due to his imperfection. And our Lord acknowledges him, inviting him, beckoning him, calling him front and center. And of course, in doing so, Jesus is calling everyone's attention to the man, placing his condition on display. And no doubt there are others in the room who are familiar with our Lord's heart, his penchant for healing, others who have witnessed his concern, his empathy and compassion, the grace that he extends toward those in need. I'm sure there are those present who can imagine, once again, the reaction of the Pharisees. Yes, Jesus has set the stage for the lesson to go forth. And he makes his next move by asking a question. Now, there are others in the space, of course, but our Lord is really, he's really addressing his accusers, the Pharisees, with this question. And the message says, then he spoke to the people, what kind of action suits the Sabbath best? Doing good or doing evil? Helping people or leaving them helpless? And no one said a word. And he looked them in the eye, one after another, angry, angry and furious at their hard-nosed religion. His anger indicating his hatred and his disapproval of all unrighteousness and injustice. A reminder to us to, that it's not enough just to love righteousness, which is, I think, what we're prone to, to do or to proclaim at any rate, but we must also hate evil. And we don't seem to step up and do that quite so well. We perhaps don't recognize that it's thoroughly, thoroughly Christ-like to be angry at evil. Indignation at the sins of one's generation is evidence of the believer placing herself on the side of God against evil. And so I wonder, what world values and systems God is inviting us to come alongside him opposing today? Yes, angry and furious at their hard-nosed religion. And so he asked, is it lawful? This, this is the question the Pharisees are trying to snare him with. So the living word questions his own word, tossing it out to them, seeking clarification. Is it lawful? The question presupposing that healing was defined as work. Now his contemporaries at that time, they would have accepted a violation of the Sabbath to save a life. That would have been all right but they probably would have questioned its relevance in this particular case for this unnamed man who seemingly 
unimportant because we don't know who he is. And Jesus is claiming that healing work ought to take priority over observance of the Sabbath. He puts the meaning of the Sabbath to the test. And he effectively claims that it's more consistent with the intent of the law to restore this man's hand, his afflicted hand, even on the Sabbath, than it is to destroy the hopes of the man for the sake of keeping human tradition. And so I wonder what traditions we're holding on to so tightly just for the sake of remaining the same, just because we've always done it that way. We still think, oh, that must still be the best. That must be the correct interpretation of the word. And I wonder how we, like this example, how are we participating building hope? What invitations are we extending? What word are we speaking? What actions are we taking? And I find myself, as I was reading this, thinking about all these different groups that I'm a part of and all these different community spaces I go into, so many situations with others in the room that are silent. Who in the midst of all the conversations, all the readings we're engaging, they choose to remain silent. And so I wonder, is the silence a quiet reflection? Or is it more attuned to the Pharisees' refusal to respond to Jesus? The Pharisees are watching to accuse, but they're silent cowards, not making a charge against him. And now Jesus speaks again. Stretch out your hand. Show me your condition. Show me your need. Exercise your faith. Participate with me, he might be saying. And the man was listening. Now, can you imagine if you're called out? I'm in a, it's not a strange space because I've been here before, but it's not the space I'm normally in. And so I'm still nervous when I come here, even though you welcome me and receive me so well. But imagine this man. I'm sure he knew the people there in the synagogue too, but he's called out front and center in front of everyone with his withered hand that he's probably normally trying to hide. But he's listening. And so if he had any trepidation about the people, the Pharisees, the fact that it was the Sabbath, as far as we can tell, he kept it to himself. Because he stood there and then he was obedient. He was obedient. I'm going to say it again. He was obedient to the command. I wonder, are we listening to the Lord, to the Holy Spirit, to our Father? Are we obedient to what we hear? Because often when he speaks, it sounds strange. It's not the normal kind of thing we're expecting, at least in my life. But then I'm strange. But he was obedient to the command. 
And so I wonder, what would it be like for us to stretch? What would that be like? If we did stretch, what might be healed and restored? He stretched, and his hand was restored. I imagine his life was restored. Community for him most likely was restored. Acceptance was probably restored. Work maybe was restored. Hope, I'm sure, was restored. Jesus never, he never did away with the principle of a day of rest. Only the misuse of it by the Jewish leaders. Sabbath for us today provides us an opportunity to reaffirm that our trust and our delight are in the Lord, not in the world, not in our own selfish way or material goods or our own pleasure. The Sabbath is a day for us to renew our initial commitment to Christ, our oneness with each other, with other believers, and to acknowledge that our entire lives, our entire lives, not just one Sabbath, belong to him, belong to God. The Sabbath was set apart by God as a holy day. And I think Sabbath can be seen as God's commitment to us that he will carry out his will for us and that he is constantly available to us to act in behalf of our needs. He is always open to our prayers and devoted to our interests. We are his. Thanks be to God. I think Deborah is inviting us to consider again this new way of being and seeing in the world that Jesus shows to us. So here in this story, it's the Sabbath, and Jesus' invitation is to see it anew and to imagine it with, with different eyes. I think it, it goes back to what we've been saying in a few weeks of this journey through Mark, that Jesus didn't come just to tweak the edges. He comes to potentially change everything, to flip it all upside down. And not just 2,000 years ago, but today, for you and for me. And we, we are reminded of this as we share this meal because, you know, Jesus takes bread and he breaks it with his disciples and he says to them, take and eat. And this is my body. And then he pours out this cup and says to them, this is the, the blood of, and it's the new covenant. This is my blood. This is the new covenant poured out. Um, a new covenant, something New, not a tweaking, not a slight refinement. God is up to something new. And that is, again, true today for you and for me.
God is looking to do new things in you and in us and in the world. And this meal invites us to remember that and to live into it. So here at the branch, we say that um, for communion, you are invited to participate. You're not expected to participate. There's not anyone uh, with an attendance sheet in the back or kind of keeping track of who is and who isn't. There's no expectation. Uh, but there is an invitation to come and to taste and to touch and to smell, to see that God is good and that God is doing new things. So today as we share this meal, we're going to do that by having two people up front here and two people in the back. And in both places, there will be bread, gluten-free crackers, and the cup. And you're invited to come to either of those stations and to break off a piece of bread and then to dip it into the cup and to receive the words of the people who are serving you and then to eat it and again to taste and to touch and to smell and to feel God's new work in us. So let me offer a prayer of gratitude for this gift that is this meal. And um, after that prayer, I'll invite the stewards to come forward and then you're invited to share in it with us. Let's pray together. God, for us at the branch, this meal is a regular part of our life together. And rhythm and routine is so important in forming and shaping us. But we also recognize that things that we do regularly can also, we can kind of grow numb to them. So today... Would you awaken in each of us the profound gift that this meal is? And would you help us to hear again your promise that when we share it together, when we come around this table, you are with us, meeting us, working in our hearts and in our minds to shape us into the people that you call us to be. We thank you for this table, for this community that shares it together. And we give you thanks. In Jesus' name.